Amen. Well, greetings, everyone. Blessings be upon you for braving the weather and uh, being here today. The uh, creeping crud that's been going through our community invaded our household this week, and so I apologize for my voice being a little raspy today. Hope you can uh, bear with that and, and hope it won't distract you from the message that God has for you today from his word. It's a message, I think, from uh, God's Word that could save somebody's life today. And uh, more about that later. If uh, you want to, if you didn't bring a Bible with you today, but you'd like to follow along with us, uh, you can jump up right now. We've got some loaner Bibles right there in the back on the bookshelf. And uh, you can follow along with us. If you have your Bible, you can turn to James chapter 1. And I want to begin today by telling you two stories, true stories about two young men. The first young man was a good-hearted, good-looking, dynamic teenager who rose to power in the country that he lived in, and it just amazed everybody. He went from zero name recognition to becoming a household word and then to hero status in record time. During his reign in the land, the nation over which he ruled, reached unprecedented heights, and his military exploits became known all throughout the region. So successful was he as the head of his nation, and so inspirational was he as a military leader, that one day his generals came to him and said, look, you have equipped us so well, and this military machine that we've put in place is is running so smoothly and is so powerful that you don't have to go out and fight anymore. We'll go out and fight the battles, and you, O Cain, can stay at home. So this national leader took them up on that, and uh, he stayed at home. He was going to go to bed early one night, but he couldn't sleep, so he got up, took a walk out on the rooftop of his palace, and then it happened. Across the way, on another rooftop, a beautiful young woman was taking a late-night bath. And little did that woman know how her life was about to change. The red-blooded national leader took in an eyeful, as you can imagine, and he watched, and he watched some more. And after a little while, he was so filled with desire for this woman that he sent his assistant across the way to tell her, to demand, actually, that she come and appear before him in his presence, ostensibly for business purposes, of course, But after the business was done, you know the story, they ended up in bed together. And as you know, the result of that night was a royal big-time mess. Families were messed up, relationships were fractured, there was a pregnancy, there was slander, eventually there was murder. And all of this undoing was the result of unrestrained, uncontained desire. Of course, I'm talking about the man named David, David and Bathsheba. Now, the other story is a bit different because even though it also involves a red-blooded young man, this time the aggressor in this true story is a hot-blooded young lady. She's the trophy wife of the highest-ranking military official in the land where she lived, and she was bored stiff with her life, that is, until her husband hired a new personal assistant who not only was good around the house, but he was a hunk. He was dashingly handsome. And after being alone in the house with this heartthrob for a week or two, the wife of this general began to feel a surging sense of desire sweeping over her. 
And so she starts to make passes at this young man. And she's subtle at first, but not so subtle after a while. The only problem is he's not responding to her. And this uh, really just kind of ups the ante for her, and she turns up the heat a little bit till one day she actually begins to tear his clothes off. And she says, look, I'm through flirting. I'm through playing games with you. I want you. I want you right here and right now. Now, don't you think that was a, a tantalizing proposition for this young man? A beautiful woman coming on strong, an empty house. He had both motive and opportunity. But believe it or not, when this seductress starts the undressing thing, this normal red-blooded guy makes a mad dash out of her arms, out of her bedroom, out of the house, and he says to himself, I cannot do this evil thing in the sight of my God. I will not forfeit what I have with my God for the sake of a few fleeting moments of pleasure. The story is recorded in Genesis 39, and this man's name was... Joseph, Joseph, David and Joseph. Question, why was it that one of these young men was able to fend off the strong desires of temptation and the other one was not? And maybe a more pertinent question for us today, which of these two are you most like when you feel that strong, sweeping desire coming over you? I'm not just talking about sexual feelings. Also talking about feelings of revenge, the desire to punish and penalize someone who's hurt you. Talking about feelings of envy, feelings of jealousy, feelings of violence, feelings of wanting to win at all costs, feelings of wanting to prove that you are right. How do you respond when those feelings come over you? I bring all this up today because it's the subject of the section that we're looking at in James chapter 1 today, beginning with verse 13. He's going to talk to us today about temptation. Those desires that get stirred up within us that, if we let them, can wreak havoc in our lives. Now, I had a temptation come into my life just this this week. I came into the office one day, and there in my uh, mailbox was a, a big box of Little Debbies. And someone who was here last weekend who heard my message and heard my sad story of woe and heartbreak at the hands of my teenage girlfriend, Debbie, decided to ease my pain by giving me a box of Little Debbies. And believe me, I was tempted to take that box into my office and scarf all of those for myself. But clearer thinking prevailed, and I managed to fend off that temptation. I took that box into the next meeting I was going into, and I distributed them among some of my colleagues, thus becoming a source of temptation for them. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, clear-headed thinking is something that uh, we often don't have when we're in the midst of a temptation, right? I mean, our mind turns to mush, and we're not seeing clearly, we're not thinking clearly. And James is coming to us today with some clear-headed thinking, some wisdom, like we talked about last week, when it comes to handling these situations that we often find ourselves in. He begins this way, in verse 13. He says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. 
Now, note this. The first thing that James is saying about temptation today is this. Don't blame God for it. It's not God's fault. Accept personal responsibility. Don't blame God. Now, there was a popular rabbinical teaching of that day that that basically stated this, that if someone found themselves in a situation that was um, beyond their control and, and they couldn't handle it and they caved into the pressure and crossed a moral line, this teaching said that it was God's fault for putting the person in that situation to begin with. But James wants to head that off right at the outset of this conversation. He says, look, don't blame God. God is good. It says God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God has no desire to wreck your life, to ruin your life, to mess you up. God is a good God. Now, this notion of blaming other people for our mess-ups has been around for a while, hasn't it? It started way back with our earliest ancestors in the Garden of Eden, where when God confronted Adam about his sin, what did Adam say? It's the woman, you know. Don't blame me, God. I was going, you know, things were going great until you brought this woman into my life. Okay? So God confronts the woman Eve, and what does she say? Basically, the devil made me do it. You know, that serpent. And the descendants of Adam and Eve have been blaming God and blaming other people for their mess-ups ever since. And James is saying, stop that. Stop blaming other people. Accept responsibility. When you enter that kind of situation, say something to yourself like this. If I mess up, I'm going to own it. It's my fault, no one else's. I'm going to stop blaming God, blaming the devil, blaming other people, blaming my parents, blaming my second grade teacher, blaming my grandparents, blaming my genes, blaming my inherited genetic tendencies. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to start accepting responsibility for my life and my choices. That has the ring of truth to it, doesn't it? Even though we live in a culture where it's always somebody else's fault. This is a refreshing word from James. He says, if you want to beat temptation in your life, you've got to start with accepting personal responsibility. Then look at what he says next. Verse 14. But each one is tempted when? By his own evil desire. He says, look, the way it works is something out there triggers something that's in here. Dark desires. And when that happens, he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Basically, James is saying this. Understand how this thing works. Understand that temptation always follows a predictable pattern. It happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. The same pattern was used with David, that was used with Joseph, that is used with you and I every week. He says, you've got to understand the pattern of what's going on here. And to do that, he uses some words that have interesting meaning. Uh, underline the words dragged away and enticed. Those words actually come from the world of hunting and fishing. So we've got any hunters or fishermen here today? See your hands? Okay. You're going to, this is going to resonate with you. You're going to understand this. These words describe the process used to trap an animal or a fish so that it could be caught and used for food. So James basically says this about temptation. This is how it works. There is a hunter. 
He wants you for food. He goes about it by strategically laying a trap designed to ensnare you. He knows you. He's been watching you all your life. He knows your weaknesses. So he decides to place some very tantalizing bait right in your path in hopes that it will entice you and lure you into his trap, which is hidden. It's always concealed, isn't it? Once you take the bait, the trap snaps shut and you're caught. You forfeit your freedom. Your freedom is gone. The hunter gleefully watches you trying to squirm free from the trap. He laughs at your pitiful state and then he fillets you and gobbles you up. James says that is the pattern of temptation that the the tempter has been using for centuries. Understand it. Now, earlier he said, you can't blame Satan, okay? You can't say the devil made me do it. But he didn't say that Satan wasn't involved, because he is. And he has a time-tested, proven sequence that he uses to lure us. Now, this summer... um, we had our annual staff retreat, and this year, as last year, we had it out at uh, Twin Lakes, the Chittam's Retreat. It's a great place to go, and uh, we enjoy praying together and planning together. We do a study together as a staff, but in between the sessions, there is some time for some recreation and specifically some fishing in the pond there. So um, we were at a break time, and I boldly proclaimed to several of my co- colleagues there, I said, I'm going to do what I did last year, which is land one of those huge catfish in this pond that you can actually see swimming around on the surface of this pond. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, sure. I said, no, it worked last year, and I'm going to do the same thing this year that I did last year because I figure that catfish are just kind of dumb and that fish don't, you know, think it all the way through. I mean, do fish say to each other, hey, have you noticed that Uncle Harold hasn't been around much since he chomped that worm a few weeks ago? I don't know that that happens. So... I found a nice juicy night crawler, which is uh, akin to an outback steak for a catfish, put it on a hook, and I thought to myself, if I can just toss this baby out there just in the line of sight of one of these big catfish that are swimming around, maybe they'll be enticed by it and they'll be drawn away, and I can catch one because it worked last year. And despite the fact that Andy had just thrown out a whole bunch of dog food into the pond and so a lot of the catfish had full stomachs already, I figured it would still work. So I tossed that thing out there, and lo and behold, I got it right in front of a big catfish. Wham! He hit that thing, chopped on it, felt a sharp pain in his upper lip, or whatever catfish have, felt himself being dragged away by an invisible force. I wonder if that catfish had some thoughts at that point. Thoughts like, man, I wish I hadn't been quite so hasty when I saw that juicy worm floating in front of me. Thoughts like, well, I wish I, I'd kept my appetite in check a little bit more. Or maybe I can get a do-over here. But no such luck for that catfish. I wrestled with him for a while, and finally I dragged that 15 to 20 to 25-pound bad boy up on that shore <laughs> against his will. And I'm telling you, if it weren't for Susan's soft heart and the fact that those catfish were her pets and she made me throw it back, that guy could have been dinner that night for us. That is the way temptation works. James says, 
People figure this out. Understand the pattern that Satan has been using for centuries and centuries. And it works. Satan, the evil one, has been enticing people and luring them and baiting them and hiding hooks and stealing people's freedom for centuries. Let me just tell you how sinister our enemy is. I think during this process of temptation, he wears three different hats, okay? He starts out, and he's got his tempter hat on, his tempter hat. Usually what he does is he sizes up the vulnerabilities of a person, and then right in that soft spot, he stirs up within them a dark desire. For example, if someone has power and control issues, he'll whisper to them, you know, come on. Let's take over right here, right now. If someone uh, has bouts with depression, he'll whisper to them, you know, it's not even worth it. Why keep going? Why don't you just give up? If someone is vulnerable to pleasure-seeking, he'll whisper, come on, come on. Let's go out and have a really good time. If someone is vulnerable to character issues, he'll say, come on, let's bend the rules a little bit here. If someone has sexual issues, it'll be, uh, how about some eye candy right now? I mean, you deserve it. Or you'll say, why not put a little suggestive language in that next email to your coworker? Who knows? Maybe, maybe they'll respond in kind and maybe something will heat up and develop here. This is how he starts. He finds a weakness. He finds a soft spot and he begins to stir up a desire. That's where James says it starts with evil desires. But then if that weren't enough, he switches hats takes his tempter hat off when he sees her interested, and he puts his salesman hat on, becomes a promoter. And this is where he begins to make big promises. And he says, come on, if you do this, you'll be a real man. Or if you do that, you'll be a, a modern-day woman. And he tries to sell a bill of goods. He says, engage in this, it'll be the thrill of a lifetime, buy this, experience that, the payoff will be huge, it'll satisfy your soul, and then the biggie, and no one will ever, what? No one will ever know. No one will ever find out. And then the the, the coup de grace of his sales pitch, there'll never be any consequences, you'll never have to pay. So he tries to sell his product, and then when we take the bait, When we fall for his lure, he shifts hats again and he puts on his accuser hat. Have you experienced this? So you've blown it, you've fallen for the trap, you've taken the bait again, and then he stands back with his accuser hat and he says, you sorry excuse for a Christian. Look what you did. That's a despicable thing you did. God will never forgive you for that. Why don't you just hang your head in shame, loser? Does this ring true with anybody? Does he, does he not do this? I mean, talk about insidious. He baits us, he lures us into his trap, and then when we fall for it, he puts on the other hat and starts accusing us. God will never forgive you for that. You're such a sinner. And obviously when we're in that condition, when we're in that state, he's got us right where he wants us. We're defeated, we're down, we're discouraged, we're no threat to him at all. And he loves it. He's won. And I think James would look at us today and say, you do not have to give in to Satan's ploys. 
You don't have to keep giving in a temptation. You can understand the pattern of what's going on here. You can. If you will, number three, expose the deception. That's what he says in verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. That juicy worm comes floating by once again, and he's saying, look at that thing and go, there's a hook in there. There's a hook in there. I saw what happened with Uncle Harold. I'm going to think about this for a little bit. Break the cycle, expose the deception. I think James would say, even if your, your tendency to give in to a certain temptation was handed down to you generationally, that can be broken if you'll understand the pattern and break the deception. You can walk in victory, I believe he would say. You don't have to succumb to the lies of the devil. You can't expose his charade. You can abort the process. You can stop desire from turning into sin and sin from leading to death. You do not have to let Satan ruin your life. There's a pattern. Desire leads to deceit, to disobedience, to death. Earlier this week, I was, uh, it was late one night. I was getting ready to go to bed. And I was going to eat my typical bowl of cereal, watch the news, and uh, sat down, turn on the news, and must have been a, a low news day, not much happening. So I flipped over to one of these uh, news magazines, investigative report. And uh, the story that they were reporting on intrigued me because it, it takes place around Richmond, Virginia, which is where all of my in-laws live, and we've got family all over that area. And uh, I began to watch this story as it unfolded. And it was a gut-wrenching, heartbreaking story. I could not watch the whole thing. But the story centered around this 17-year-old girl named Taylor who was getting ready to enroll at VCU, uh, Virginia Commonwealth University there in the area. And her dad brought her to campus to kind of check things out. And while she was there, she, she meets this guy who was posing as a student. The reality was is that he's about 35 years old, addicted to porn. But he had this way about him. His, his other girlfriends in the past were interviewed, and they said he had this way about him. He could just charm you and, and you know, just shower attention and affection on young women to the point where they just felt like they were the most important person in the world. And while she was there visiting campus that weekend, Taylor met this guy. And he began to, you know, ply his trade with her. And it's like she was under his spell, you know. She was charmed. And, and she started this relationship. Even when she left and went back home, she kept emailing him and emailing him. And they, they kicked up this relationship. When she finally did arrive on campus several months later, they reconnected again and began to see each other, began to date. According to her friends... She got sucked into this to the point where she even crossed a moral line, a sexual line, which was highly unusual for her, they said. She was known as a prude, really, by 17-year-old standards. And yet she gave in to a temptation and had sex with this guy. And, of course, that strengthened the emotional bonds between them. And she kept giving in and kept giving in and kept giving in. Until one night, he came by and picked her up at her dorm late one night. And she left with him in his car. And she was not seen again. She was not seen again for a month until her 
badly decomposed body was found in a wooded ravine in rural Virginia, 90 miles away. He had killed her. And the story is just like tearing my heart out, you know, and I'm, 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 I'm listening to all this and the parents get on there. And of course, you can imagine the grief and the anger and all of this, you know, that they're going through. And, and I'm thinking the story and I'm, I'm looking at it through the lens of James 1, 16 and 17 that I've been studying. And I'm thinking, you know, how many times have any of us ever had this thought? Well, just this once won't hurt. If I just give in this one time, if I just go, go and hang out at this place one time, if I just do this once, it's not going to hurt. No one's going to know. There's not going to be any consequences. In fact, it's, it's going to be fun. It's going to be pleasurable. And, and it's no big deal. And I wonder, I wonder if Taylor ever had any of those thoughts in that process while she was dating this guy. You know, beautiful young lady who figured she had her whole future ahead of her. But succumbing to temptation ended up killing her. You say, you trying to scare us? Yeah. Yeah. Being naive about temptation can ruin your life. Did you know that? I debated bringing this story up, but I thought maybe there's one young lady here today who's on the verge of the very same thing, and your life can be saved if you cut it off and decide that the the promise of pleasure or the feel-good feelings that you think you're going to get from this aren't worth the trade-off. By the way, let me just talk about porn for a minute. This is something that we're going to tackle in this church In a couple of months, we're going to tackle it head on. We're going to address the issue of pornography in our culture and in our society, and in our church and in our homes, because this stuff is killing us. Do you know this? It's like poison. It's like acid. And it's it's eating away at the core of our of our nation and our communities and our families. And I know that that it makes some of you cringe to hear that your church is going to address pornography on a weekend, but. If the church doesn't address it, where are families going to find help? We've got to address this. A couple weeks after Easter in April, we're just going to take a weekend and we're going to devote it to to tackling this thing head on. It's not just a guy thing anymore. You realize this? Somewhere around 40% of of usage now is women. We've got to wake up. James says, look, you, you do not have to succumb to the strategies of the devil. If you'll understand his pattern, if you'll break the deception, you do not have to let Satan ruin your life. But here's the deal. I don't think if James were here today talking to us about sin and temptation, I don't think he would just look at us and say, you know, try harder, do better. I think he would go to something deeper within us at our core that is, goes to what we think will bring us pleasure and satisfaction. Because I think James would realize that's where it all starts. One man said, all sin is rooted in a dissatisfaction with God. And James is going to talk with us about that in verse 17. Look what he says. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, 
who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. Now, you look at this and you say, is this a new section? Is James starting down a different trail here and, and, and introducing a new subject? I don't think that he is. I think he's still talking about temptation. And you see what he's saying here? He's saying this. When we determine to find our deepest satisfaction and our greatest delight in our God and in the gifts that he has graciously given us, the promised pleasure of sin will pale in comparison to that. Do you see that? You see, he's been talking about darkness and, and death and all those things associated with the devil. Now he's talking about God. and He's talking about light and life. And he says, hey, think about God for a minute. God's a lot like the sun. And he brings us a visual from nature. God's a lot like the sun. God loves us. God is streaming down into our lives good gifts like sunbeams that we can just bask in the goodness of God and his good gifts. And unlike the sun, God's not going to turn away from us. We're not going to be in shadows. God's gifts are constant in our lives. And James, I believe, is saying this. You can get to the point in your life where temptation and sin looks disgusting to you in light of what you have in God. Do you believe that? That your soul, because of God in your life and God's presence in your life and, and His satisfaction of your soul, that, that you're going through life and all of a sudden you see a, a juicy worm planted right in front of you. And you look at that thing and you go, are you kidding me? You want me to give up all that I have in God for that? You've got to be crazy. I love God. God loves me. He's in my life. I walk with him. His spirit dwells within me. He satisfies the deepest, deepest desires in my soul. Why would I make a trade-off like that? It's disgusting. I think... God wants us to get to that point with him, don't you? Where it's like, I'm not going to give up what I've got with God for that, a few moments of fleeting pleasure. You've got to be kidding me. I guess I need to ask, is your relationship with God at that level where you're experiencing that kind of satisfaction and pleasure in God? Because if not, some things are going to look really tempting to you, really enticing. You know, I find that I'm most susceptible to the draw of temptation when I've taken my eyes off of God and his wonderful gifts to me. Is that how it works for you? And have you thought lately about God's gifts to you? Have you just stopped to ponder God's wonderful gifts to your life? You know, you can see them every day if you're looking. A brilliant sunset. A parking space opening up right in front of you. <laughs> His whisper of love into your soul through the hug of a close friend. The word of God in your hands. The Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart. Eyes that can see, ears that can hear, feet that can walk, a house to live in. Plenty of food and clothing and heat and shelter. How about a hot shower? I get up every morning and, and get in the hot shower and I almost always say the same thing. God, thank you for hot showers. <laughs> Help me wake up, you know, and it's a blessing. It's a gift from God. 
Every good gift, he says, every perfect gift in our lives comes streaming down from heaven. From our good and great God. How about the gift of forgiveness? How about that? Because how many of us have given in to temptations in our life? I mean, I have my soft spots too. I have my vulnerabilities, my weak areas. And I I must confess, I give in more than I would care to admit. But when I do, I find I can go to my God. And based on 1 John 1, 9, claim that promise that if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sometimes I stand in the shower in the morning and I say, God, just just cleanse me, just rinse over me, just wash over me with your blood, kind of like I feel this water coming over me. Rinse me clean for a new day because your mercies are new every morning. And I may have messed up yesterday, but today's a new day with you, Jesus. It's a gift from God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And his gifts to us are bountiful. They're awesome, aren't they? Think of the the love, the the intimate love of a spouse. It's a gift. Think of your kids, like we saw earlier today. They're gifts from God. Just this week, uh, late one night, my wife and I were getting ready to turn in for the evening, and our two younger kids, kids came bounding into our bedroom and tumbled onto the bed, and one of them all of a sudden stopped and looked at Shirley and said, Mom... I just want to thank you for all the wonderful things you do for me. You're a great mom, and I love you. Give her a big hug and a kiss. Then he turns to me and says the same thing to me. So his little brother who's watching this and the reaction that it's getting does the same thing with his mom and then with me. And Then they go, you know, running off to their bedroom, and, and Shirley and I just look at each other without words. We were communicating, like, pinch me. Is this a dream? Did we just die and go to heaven or what? What's going on here? And I think that that God knows that sometimes as parents, you know, parenting is just kind of a thankless job, right? I mean, sometimes you're just not getting much back. And God in his love gives us these wonderful gifts, these glimpses of his grace, just to say, I love you. You're on track. Hang in there. I see what you're doing. Listen, we do not have to succumb to the strategies of the tempter. You may have been giving in to him in an area for weeks or months or years. That can end today. Because now you understand the pattern. You see the deception. There's a hook in there. My freedom will be lost. Besides all that, I'm in love with a great God who pleasures my life more than I could ever imagine. I'd be crazy to forfeit that for that. Sometimes you've got to get a little militant. Sometimes you've got to get a little angry about what Satan has stole from you. It says he's the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy, right? So he hates you, doesn't even like you. He wants to steal every good thing that you have in your life. Sometimes you've got to march into the enemy's camp and take back that which he has stolen away from you and claim it as your rightful possession through Jesus Christ. I want to say a prayer for all of us today because we all face temptations. And we're going to stand and worship together with a high energy, high voltage praise song that talks about just that. Okay?
talks about taking back what the enemy has stolen from us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for our high and lofty position in you that you have given us. Talk about good gifts. Nothing compares with that one. We're seated in heavenly places, forgiven, cleansed, set apart, consecrated. We are one of yours. You've set your love upon us. You are incredible. I pray for everybody in this room today who struggles with temptation, God. Would you please open their eyes, give them the wisdom to see your perspective, to have your vantage point on the situation. And Lord, may we just be so enraptured by you and satisfied in our souls by you that sin begins to look disgusting. And we turn away and we run into your arms. We pray that you teach us about praise warfare how to run into the enemy's camp and take back that which has been taken from us. And God, um, may we walk in your ways. Thank you for your word. Help us to accept responsibility, understand the pattern, break the deception. Most of all, find our deepest heart satisfaction and pleasure in our relationship with you. And we love you. Let's stand together and worship our great God.